Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. What's causing the shortages of some fruit and vegetables on our supermarket shelves? And is it something we might need to get used to? Over a grand for a bunk bed in Dublin for St. Patrick's Day weekend, accusations of price gouging are being fired at the hospitality industry. And later, on the third anniversary of the first confirmed coronavirus case in Ireland, it's revealed that over a quarter of COVID deaths occurred in nursing homes. Governments say an inquiry into the state's handling of the pandemic is on the way. You join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. As always, it's hashtag tonight, VMTV. tonight. If you found yourself in the supermarket over the past few days, you may have noticed a lack of certain produce, such as tomatoes and cucumbers, on the shelves. So why is this happening? And is it something the consumer will have to become more accustomed to? Well, I'm joined now by Martin Hayden, TD, the Minister of State at the Department of Agriculture, by Daniel McConnell, political editor with the Irish Examiner, by Lynn Boylan, Senator with Sinn Féin, and by Dr. Arne Finnegan, who's a policy analyst at the Irish Farmers Journal. You're all very welcome to the programme, Daniel. I know you've covered this uh, in the paper. Mm. So what are consumers experiencing at the moment when they go to their, their local supermarket? Well, it's this kind of curious position that you're going, you're going into the vegetable section and you're finding the usuals like your, your, your peppers, tomatoes, broccoli, lettuce, lettuce, aubergines and cucumbers, just not there. So simply not there and we're being told that this is because of unseasonally cold weather in Europe because at this time of year we import a lot of our stuff from Spain and elsewhere and it's just you know the you know con consecutive cold spells is leading to a kind of a and, and disease in certain cases is leading to um, just the unavailability of a lot of our, our staple our staple products. And is it across all of the big supermarkets and some of the smaller retailers well, as well? well? Well what we've seen is a, some, a number of the big ones like the Littles, the Aldis, you know implement a kind of a limit on what people can take so there, there are definitely controls being put in place. We're seeing some pictures yeah. there I think from supermarket shelves uh, taken I know in the last 24-48 hours. And what we're likely to see and I think what we are likely to see is that you know, you know this, I suppose this realisation that we may not be able to get all the products that we want all year round you know what I mean and and maybe go back to a, get used to the idea again of seasonality where things are, are in season and they're not. But because there are genuine questions around the, you know, the food, food chain and all that kind of stuff. But what it does, I suppose, go to show as well is that the, you know, the, you know, the, the impact of unseasonal weather can just knock out you know, and have a very dramatic effect on what we can get in our supermarkets, and that's clearly happening at the moment. Yeah. And in terms of the things that are in short supply, how long has this been going on for? And are we having to pay more for them? 
when there is this sort of supply and demand Yeah, issue. so we've seen this for over the last couple of weeks. And again, I'm going, I was doing my research today, and we, you know, so stories began to appear this time last week, really, about, you know, the you know the, the shortages of supply and we see warnings from from people that this is not going to end anytime soon we could be weeks even months away from from getting supplies back to a, a relatively normal given that unseasonably cold weather and we see snow in Mallorca and everything continuing in the last 24 hours or so so you are experiencing this very very unusual weather at this time of year and as I said you know we're not here in Ireland in a position to readily replace that stock uh, from our own sort of indigenous kind of farm so it is causing a difficulty. Uh, Anne, is it all down to weather in these countries that supply these particular fruit and veg? Yeah, I mean, I think on the face of it, the, that's the that's the the simple answer. Um, but I think there's much more going on in the supply chain of fresh produce. I think, you know, first of all, uh, producers have faced right across Europe, not just in Ireland, soaring input costs over the past 24 months. We've seen fertilizer, energy prices, and the types of crops we're talking about: um, tomatoes, cucumbers, salad-type vegetables grown in Spain at this time of the year, um, which is, the you know, talking to a producer this evening on the way up, you know, they regard it as the hungry season. We can't supply it in Northern Europe. The Southern countries can. Um, but the, the cost of actually producing those products in Northern Europe under, grass, under glass has escalated dramatically. Because the energy costs have obviously skyrocketed for every business out there. Absolutely, and these crops require heat to grow them in, in Northern Europe. But adding into that, you know, producers are still facing in intense pressure from the retail multiples. Um, that hasn't eased. And I mean, I think it was very stark to see pictures of, uh, you know, journalists and commentators in the UK over the past week standing in front of empty shelves with, you know, lowest price guaranteed, 39 pence um, in the background, which really shows the scale of the challenge in this sector. Yeah, because although we are experiencing it here in Ireland, they seem to be hit much, much harder in the UK. I know it's been sort of leading the news there, certainly very high up in the agenda for the last couple of weeks. Is that because of Brexit? Does that sort of complicate the trade with these countries that supply these fruit and vegetables even more? Yeah, and I think there, I mean, obviously the, the challenges in the UK have been compounded within their own sector as well. Um, they've seen quite a lot of exits in the sector. Labour has been a particular issue in the sector, and it is a labour-intensive sector. And, and we've seen those challenges in Ireland as well. Um, um, I mean, we've seen consolidation in the sector over the past two decades. In the past 24 months, you know, and we've seen consolidation, smaller, smaller numbers of growers, but the output staying the same. But we're starting to see growers and actual land leaving the sector now. And I think that's a real challenge. Um, what countries are supplying the majority of our fruit and veg? So at this time of the year, we're looking to the likes of, you know, Italy, uh, predominantly Spain, North Africa, Morocco, to supply the type of vegetables that are out of season here at the moment. There's a, a good supply of field vegetables in Ireland at the moment, um, and obviously what is in season here has been supplied. But so if you want your, your carrots, your turnips, your parsnips, your potatoes, you're fine, but if you want your mushrooms perhaps, or your, your peppers, or your aubergine, as you said your tomatoes, you're in more bother. Yeah, well, you're fine in the, to the extent that we have, you know, probably less than 100 producers now um, producing these vegetables um, in comparison to the numbers we would have had 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and, and actively seeing them uh, walking out of the sector. Yeah, and just to be clear, I suppose, um, Lynn, in terms of food security in Ireland, you know, when we compare ourselves to other European countries, we generally rate very highly. We're not talking about sort of serious food shortages here. 
No, we, we rate highly in the metrics that are used to mm. assess food security, but actually we import a huge amount of food that could be produced here. So even the likes of turnips and carrots and potatoes, I mean, it was only last year that it was announced to, to great fanfare that we were going to be commercially growing apples again in this country. Like, I think most people would find that shocking that a country like Ireland can't produce apples or enough potatoes to feed itself. So I do think we need to do more in terms of diversifying. And as Anne said, like, I think there were 400 uh, vegetable growers 20 years ago, there's now only 100. So if we want to be more food secure, I do think we need to be supporting farmers to diversify um, and to look at other countries who have done this, like Denmark, have, have really uh, interesting model of sort of regional economies. So you have the facilities there for, for tillage farmers to, to store, to dry, to mill. Um, so I think there are things that we could be looking at, certainly to improve food security. Because do you think sort of as just from the consumer point of view here, given the energy costs that we're seeing, given climate change, that we are to expect more interruptions to our food chains, that they're not as secure, perhaps, as we once thought they were? Yeah, and I think like we were all going to have to adapt because the reality is climate change is going to make it much more difficult to, to produce certain foods at different times of the year. And we've become accustomed to just going into the supermarket and getting the tomato or the aubergine any time we want. Buying so, a pineapple 365 it, days a year. Does I, that have to change, do you think? I do then? think that we have to be honest with ourselves and we are going to have to change. And if you look, at a lot of restaurants do it and they do it because it makes sense economically for them to be producing seasonal food. I mean, I, I know myself, I get a seasonal veg box and yeah there's a point in the winter where you, you see another person if you'll probably cry but that's I mean it kind of does bring you back to touch with what what we used to grow what we were providing and now we've just become accustomed to getting very cheap below cost uh, value for for the fruit and veg um, that is in the supermarket. Do you pay a bit more for that seasonal food box? And I presume most of it's Irish produced. It's, it's all Irish produced, yeah. So, I mean, it, but it lasts much longer because it, you've cut out the supermarket element of it and that you're getting it directly from the farmer. So it's much fresher and it lasts a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's fresher, it lasts longer. But it is a luxury and I and understand that. it is a luxury, that. isn't it, Martin? It's not available for everybody because, it had, you know, that's another issue is food poverty is a real problem. Well, I suppose what it does really is bring home to all consumers where our food comes from, and it's a good thing that we become more aware of that. Um, because we do take that for granted. We do. You know, very few of us, I think, walk around a supermarket and lift up you know, a, a spring onion or a sweet potato or look and say, where did this come from? Yeah. How did this get here? How was this produced? And we've got used to having a great array and supply of food all year round, which is a great thing for our diets, for our nutrition. Um, and, you know, our food supply chains are highly integrated now. Um, what we want to do is continue uh, to grow and su support our horticulture sector, our tillage sector here in Ireland. Um, and, you know, we have a number of supports in there around the 4.2 million euro that was put into the horticulture sector to support horticulture growers to have producer organisations, which strengthens their hands in their dealing but, with the multiples, um, as an example. Um, we were talking about the situation in the UK uh, at the moment, uh, but they, they're pretty self-sufficient, aren't they, Anne? About 60% of their food is produced in the UK. We're nowhere near that in Ireland, are we? No, we're not. Um, but, um, you know, if... If the economics stacked up in the sector, we, ha we haven't seen the decline in the sector because, uh, you know, farmers have gone off to, to do something uh, else or there's something better with their land. Economics is driving farmers out of the sector. So 
There's no I mean, better money in dairy and beef at the moment. Well, you're not. You're, I mean, much of the land that is going out of, you know, people who are exiting glass houses in, in North County Dublin and Ireland, they're not doing that on small acres of glass to go into something like dairy and beef. And similarly in the field crop, they may be going into, into cereals or into tillage. Um, but, but I mean, you know, the, the discussion around, you know, um, becoming more self-sufficient, you know, it's for those producers, it's largely academic when they can't stay in business. And I think the first thing we need to do is look at how we stabilise um, the supply chain that we have. How do we make that more profitable and um, sustainable, financially sustainable over the long term? There's a significant you know, financial risk seasonally for all of these producers in terms of planting a crop um, uh, with no certainty of what the yield will be and what okay. your return will be at the end. Because I think, Daniel... We often see ourselves, don't we, as a food-producing nation. You hear this, we're an agricultural nation. And yet we export most of what we make and we, we import most of what we consume. We do. and That's, I think That is kind of the model at the moment, isn't it? It is. And it, but I also think as well, you know, there's a fundamental question I think we all have to ask, and I think Lynn alluded to it there. You know, are we prepared to continue to pay very, very low costs for our, the food that we get? Or are we actually going to be willing to pay a premium for it to make sure that it is domestically produced or to make that it's more sustainable. And that's an open question because I think people, by and large, day in, day out, in all the major supermarkets, vote with their feet. Well, you that's know. the thing because, as Lynn just pointed out there, the produce is available, but you you know, you know, have to eat a, a limited selection and you're paying a little bit more. Yeah. Although I agree with you, the quality is often much better. It is, but again... I suppose, so they do have an option, they're just they do, not but voting I, with but it. I, but I suppose most people, when you know they've gotten used to the major supermarket experience, they're not maybe, they're maybe not kind of accustomed to the, kind of the, the, the boutique or the bespoke kind of arrangements that, that may be on offer. And as well, if you've got a small family with three or four kids, the idea of actually being a little bit more choosy, about, it's just not available. You want to get in, you want to get out, and what's handy, and that's it. And that's but, ultimately but kind the of... How, have we the supermarkets are profitable. The issue is that the, it's where are the, the, where who's the... You know, farmers are price takers, unfortunately, and that's mm. where I think we need to address the issue of supermarkets dictating the prices. The same with meat processors dictate the prices. So the people who are doing the work of actually producing the food are not getting a fair price. And that's what but there do. are businesses that are very profitable. So, I mean, we all have to accept that you, you can't make food unaffordable for, for ha struggling households, but there are very, very profitable businesses who are, I suppose, shafting the farmers who are producing the food. And that's why we have the Office of Openness and Transparency and we transpose the unfair trading practices laws here to support the primary producer um, in, in that space because primary producers, whether it's in the area um, of, of the horticulture sector, tillage sector, or in, in the livestock sector here in Ireland, um, you know, have been seeing massive increases in input costs, particularly since the Ukrainian crisis. And we've had a number of interventions uh, to support them but, in that but regard. Was, but the point, Anne, you're making, if it was profitable in this country, if farmers could make a good living from it, they'd be doing it. But, They're not. True, but I think we need to be careful when we talk about um, self-sustainability, as in the suggestion that means we should just grow everything here, we consume ourselves. Food supply chains have um, become very sophisticated, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. The shortage of fruit and veg that we're talking about now okay. generally comes from uh, unheated uh, polytunnels in Tunisia or Morocco, and they've just had unseasonally cold weather and had frost. But you know the okay, idea. So that we, the idea that we should start producing bananas here in Ireland is a ridiculous one because of uh, costs. Using gas to heat glass houses—that's okay. not um, environmentally sound. It's not economically sound. So what we do here really well is we produce. You know, our livestock system off the pasture-based system is yeah. something that we do really well in parts of the country, particularly in the West, where that pasture-based system is the only place. So 
having horticulture growers and tillage growers all over the country isn't practical either. It is in certain parts no, of the country. But we do need to diversify. I mean, we need to do that for, for, for climate reasons and also for food security no, reasons. And, and that's so what we're we have seeing to, on the supermarket And, and that's what we have to do. Is we have to support yeah. farmers to do that. I mean, that's, that's what you hear when you talk to farmers is they're prepared to diversify, but they have to be able to make a living. They have to be able to keep a roof over their head. Okay. Well, well, we're talking... if, if Sinn Féin's policy there is talking about going back to a protectionist state where we just produce enough food uh, for our Ourselves. You know, that's, that's back not, to Ireland in the 1950s, that, which was not, a very poor that's country. That's not what I said. But you it's are very clearly, no, no, we've, we've even said about the, you see the organic farming schemes are oversubscribed, and yet you look at other countries, farmers take a risk by going organic, whereas again, I pointed the example of Denmark, they created markets okay. for organic farmers, they guaranteed them a market for their produce. And, we are and, that's, how, and that's how farmers go. But, but you have to guarantee them the market, because what farmers are saying is they got burnt, they with, far, the they got burnt with forestry, they got burnt okay. in the past. You set aside 256 so, so you have to, to provide, you have to, to guarantee them there's a market for, for their product. That's what we're saying. That are doing that. Do you think they should take the risk? Do you think we have been too focused in this country on livestock and dairy? I mean, I think, as the Minister said, look, we've played to our strengths in this country. We produce grass very efficiently in Ireland um, and we've converted that into protein, be it in terms of meat and in terms of um, dairy products. And that is what has driven a return and an economic return for farmers and for rural Ireland. And I would say, you know, the, the broad challenge that we're seeing now, it's not the first time that we've seen it. We're at a particular time of the year, the shoulders of the season that are, you know, traditionally very narrow anyway in terms of su supply. Mm. You know, it doesn't help that we have a just-in-time supply chain in the retail sector that probably needs to pivot to just-in-case and needs more slack in the what system. What does that really mean? So, I mean, you know, shelves fill up as the empty and there's no warehousing adjacent. If you go to your local supermarket, the entire floor space is just supermarket shelves. It's what you see on the floor. The, the lorries come in and they fill those shelves. So there's very little, and that's happening right throughout the supply chain into our, into our multiples. There's very little um, storage and, and capacity throughout the supply chain to deal with any problems that come. So once we have a, a difficulty in a market, that hits very quickly. And we've seen that before with the beast okay. from the east, bread on the shelves. Um, that, that challenge in the supply chain is a factor as well. All right. I just want to join, uh, to go to my Skype this evening because Jose Daniel Anguiler is a coffee producer from Honduras. And we're talking here, Jose, about climate change and the impact that it's having on some of the produce, some of the very popular produce uh, on our shelves here in Ireland. You say one of the things that's really under threat uh, because of climate change is coffee. Hello, thank you for the opportunity of being the, in this program. Uh, in this case, uh, my name is Jose Daniel Aguilar. I am a coffee producer for, from Central America in Honduras. And also I manage a cooperative of 650 small producers. And this opportunity, I want to talk about some things that are happening in our industry and maybe nobody is thinking about it, uh, as is climate change. Uh, climate change is really affecting us as producers of food, and maybe this, this can affect all the world in a nearly future, because every day it is harder for us to produce food for the humans. Because of climate change, each time we have less land to produce food, due to too much rain or too much dryness. And also, uh, there is not many people supporting producers 
So the grand majority are migrating to other countries or to other kind of business that can generate more incomes and sustainability on people. So is there anything people can do, Jose? To yes, like uh, I want I want to talk this night about uh, some programs or com communities that are supporting us, the producers. Uh, I travel here to Ireland to participate in the Fair Trade Fortnite. Uh, Fair Trade Community is a community in which uh, includes from the producers to the final consumers, and consumers pay like an extra. Uh, for the fair trade products, and this extra that each consumer pay, uh, it goes back uh, through the suppliers to the producers. So this really helps us to have sustainability in our crops and also to protect the environment in our farms. So with these fair trade funds, we are reforesting the agricultural areas so we can reduce climate change and maintain them producing food. All right, okay. Well, sorry to cut across you, Jose. I'm just conscious of time here. I want to put this point back to Anne and this point that you raised, Daniel, and that Jose is saying here, people have to pay that little bit more. Is that what really is, um, never mind what the government can do to support farmers, as consumers, do we all have to ex uh, accept that perhaps this era of cheap food that we have seen, that that, that, that is now coming to an end? And yeah. we're going to have to pay more. Yeah, I mean, I think um, consumers have experienced price inflation over the past 12 or 18 months, uh, food price inflation. But that's come off the back of a decade of declining real food prices. Um, and we do, ha there, is, there is greater value in food. We haven't been reflecting that in the price that we as consumers pay. Um, and I think ultimately we're, we're going to have to pay more. And I think, you know, we have become... So, so the increases, I suppose, that we're seeing over the last, you know, 12 months, a lot of us will think, well, that's just down to the energy costs, it's down to inflation. And when inflation falls back, so too will the food prices. Are you saying no, not necessarily? Well, I mean, I think over out over the medium term, Term, I think it's unsustainable, uh, you know, to, to, to expect that we can have um, margins eroded for primary producers um, and still have the, the quality of food, the abundance of food that we have. All right. OK, we're going to leave that there. I just want to come uh, to you, Daniel, before we come to the break and just ask you a very quick question about Niall Collins. He mm. was expected to address that I'll, um, some thought maybe today mm. over the story that we're seeing uh, on the ditch. What's the very latest on this? Yeah, so Niall Collins, uh, we were kind of led to believe earlier on today that he was going to seek time from the County Court to make a personal statement in the Dáil and there had been an expectation that that would happen today. It now looks like that may not happen until next week and it's been clear. Certainly... And the reason for this, just for people at home, that mightn't be clear? Okay, so the ditch on the ditch website, which, which has published a number of stories by politicians and their declarations in relation to their properties, ran a story yesterday or the day before in relation to Niall Collins and a, and a property in, in Limerick in relation and they are, they are essentially claiming that he did not de properly declare that he had ownership of a house and sought planning permission for another house under this kind of you know local needs uh, kind of definition. He's disputing that very heavily. He's saying the facts are, are he you know he acted pro properly at all times. And I suppose what he's just what he's saying now he's he's kicking for touch for it to allow himself, you know, unearth all the information, uh, get it get get his facts straight so he can go in and make uh, a statement to the doll. So we await that statement. There were further revelations obviously this evening on the ditch, which obviously we're still waiting to get a, a, a response back from Niall Collins on.
Okay, but a nervous time for government, I suppose, and for politicians, given the fact that stories like this, similar stories like this in the last couple of weeks, have led to a number of resignations. They have. I mean, we look at obviously the example of, of Martin's colleague Damon English. We look at what happened to, to Minister Robert Troy last year. So there is a nervousness, I think. But uh, I mean, I, I beg your belief that anyone who's in the political sphere who hasn't, you know, done a proper examination of all their properties and declarations of interest now already, um, you, you would seem to think that, that they're only leaving themselves open to this sort of reporting. Okay, Martin? Yeah, look, I, I think when you consider this is over 20 years ago, I think it's right that it would take the time to go through uh, all the documents, get them back from the local authority and see exactly and make sure that when he makes a statement that he's, uh, he's very clear in, in, in what he's saying on that. And he's, I know his comments where he's refuted some of the points that we made by the ditch, so I'm sure he'll take the opportunity um, to put his side of the story across in oh. the coming days. But uh, as it stands, you're on his side, you accept what he's saying, he's refuting the story. Well, I've seen his statement, yeah. So, like, you know, but he'll take the opportunity to address that in the doll. He, he's, he has said he will do that. So I'm sure he will and put out uh, the facts as, as he sees them there. All right, we will wait and see. Uh, there, we're going to leave that for now. My thanks to Anne and to Hosey. Coming up, would you pay over €1,000 for a bunk in a hostel for St Patrick's weekend? Stay with us. You're very welcome back. Now, the hospitality... Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The hospitality rather industry have been accused of overpricing for their rooms for the upcoming St. Patrick's weekend. Just before we came on air, when looking to book accommodation in Dublin, one bunk bed in an eight-person dorm in the city centre for two nights would set you back €1,033. A hotel room for one person by the airport for two nights, not including breakfast, €878. Well, Daniel McConnell, Martin Hayden and Lynn Boylan are still with us. And I'm also joined this evening by Elena fitzgerald Kane, the chairperson of the Irish Tourism Industry Confederation. Uh, Daniel, very welcome. Um, uh, Elena, you're very welcome to the programme. I'll come to you in a moment. But Daniel, Mm -hmm. uh, this is a story that was leading uh, the Daily Mail uh, this morning. They did a similar investigation and it really really gets people's back up, doesn't it? It does. And I suppose when you're, you're seeing a position that Dublin is essentially full, you know, 98% full on the Paddy's weekend. Now, I heard a representative from the Hotels Federation on, on I think, Gorty Radio earlier on saying, well, listen, it's an unusual weekend. You've got the rugby game, you've got Mother's, Mother's Day. Day, and you've got, so it's an unusual weekend. But even still, this is a week after, you know, 
the hospitality sector won a battle and lobbied Martin and his colleagues and successfully lobbied them to continue the 9% VAT rate. I think it really sticks in the craw of an awful lot of people. You know, I mean, this is gouging. This is price gouging and it might be the market at play and all the rest of it. But ultimately, you know, where's the value? Where's the fairness really in it? And, you know, like, who's going to pay €1,000 for a bunk bed in an eight-person dorm? And should we ever ask anybody to pay €1,000 for a bunk bed in a dorm? Now, when we talk about Dublin being full, just to be clear, that's 22,000 beds in this city. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much gone for gone. St. Patrick's. Now, they're, they're obviously, that's a demand. There are obviously there are mitigating factors in terms of that. Obviously, there are a number of hotels that are out of action because they're being used to hold or host um, uh, migrants at the moment, either from Ukraine or, or elsewhere. So that's having an, its own impact. But there is also obviously a very strong demand. Um, but ultimately, you know, it goes back. Ultimately, like the sector will do itself. The market is, will do what the market does. But the, the, the problem I have and a problem an awful lot of other people have is that the government caved into that lobbying last week on very dubious grounds, in my view. Um, and I'd love to hear what Martin has to say mm. in relation to that. But I just think this is a real kick in the teeth to the consumer and it's gouging by any name, by any, by any stretch and by any definition. Uh, Elena, gouging by any stretch of the imagination is the consumer here being completely ripped off. Well, what I would definitely say is, you know, the numbers that are quoted there would be something I'd be completely uncomfortable with. People should absolutely vote with their feet. The reality is there are 64,000 hotel bedrooms across um, the country, of which 23,400 are in Dublin, and a small amount in terms of outliers. And this isn't just happening now. Obviously, there's there's a lot of extra kind of demand in terms of St. Patrick's weekend. Um, but it really does such this short term if you were to use the word, does such longer term damage in terms of the reputation. And it is of Ireland as a tourism destination, both nationally and domestically. And it is not representative of the great experiences that are out there and the value that's to be had. Though, Elena, because this isn't the first time that we have reported a story like this. It seems any big occasion, All-Ireland Final, Gareth Brooks concert, Katie Taylor's fight, now St. Patrick's Day weekend, as soon as hoteliers get a sniff that there's going to be extra demand, those prices seem to skyrocket. That's a perception out there. Are they wrong? It, it is a perception. And you do see that across, you know, cities across the world, etc. that when there are events, prices do come up. But it's at what limit those prices should go up to. The reality is, if you look at STR data, this is a global um, monitor of pricing. What it says is in January, the average price of a room in Dublin was €138. Now, in the main, as you look at those and compare them to other capital cities across Europe, they're quite similar. So the prices that are being quoted, you know, are, I suppose, they're outliers when it comes to that. But equally, when you look at that average of 138 the fact is a lot of rooms would have been sold at much lower prices than that. And the fact is that a lot of people would have purchased rooms for St. Patrick's Day well in advance. And the reality is, I think a change in mindset is probably needed in some respects in terms of how important it is to book in advance, you know, almost adopting the mentalities if you're planning for overseas, because without a shadow of doubt, if you leave it to last minute, you will not be able to get, you know, the best value. And again, well, just sorry, to reaffirm... Elena, we're, I, we're talking yeah. about the best value. This is zero value. A thousand euro for a bunk bed in a dorm in Dublin? 
agreed. Um, you could go to Killarney and St. Patrick's Night. You could have a hotel stay in a four-star hotel in the middle of the town for €155. Euros. You can go to Limerick, again, lovely four-star hotel in the middle of the city for €189. Euros. You can go to Dublin suburbs. I was able to find a place for €300. Euros. You know, you can move a little further out to County Kildare, a town um, where Minister Hayden is based, you know, and you're seeing rates at 249 So, for and I'm not saying it's justifiable because it's not justifiable, but I'm just saying that, I suppose, in order to try and get the best value, it is better to book in advance, look around, choose what is of value to you. I looked at a place earlier on right, and I went, sorry, oh Elena, my God, just... that's mad. And it slept 26 people. Okay, just to the point uh, that uh, Daniel Maiden has been made, I think, right throughout the day. There are, as you said, about 23,000 hotel rooms in Dublin. At least 22,000 of those hotels are sold out, not available. Hotels booked solid. And yet this is an industry that has lobbied hard for this 9% VAT rate because of the pressure the industry is under. This looks like an industry that is booming. You cannot take one weekend as being representational of the entire year. In the aftermath of the pandemic, six billion was lost by tourism. And just remember in terms of tourism in Ireland as a brand, 70 percent of you know the employment, et cetera, supported by it is actually dispersed around the country. So Dublin is not an indicator of what the rest of, of the country is like. The, the VAT increase would have been a consumer tax. It would have added 4.1% to our inflation rate when it comes to food and accommodation at a time when we have seen incredibly high inflation. It would have potentially cost 24,000 livelihoods. It's in line with the rest of Europe. And I think the pricing that you see, or the, you know, as, as you referred to earlier on, the gouging, is, is nothing to do with VAT. The reality is it is to do with short-term decisions that have been okay, made by hotel, outliers to charge. That hotel prices have gone up by almost 20% year on year, haven't they? They've on gone up 18% since 2019. So 18% since 2019. Since 2019. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they've gone up 18% by 2019. You have a 9% VAT rate at the moment, and you also have the energy support schemes. It sounds like the Hotel Federation are doing really well in this country at the moment. Well, again, I don't speak on behalf of the Irish Hotels Federation. I speak on behalf of broader tourism. And the reality is you've had spiralling cost. You have, I suppose, pent-up demand is gone, right? The reality is there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And many businesses operate off of very, very low margins. I was speaking to a restaurateur recently. They operate off of a 3% margin. Um, so the reality is in terms of like tourism recovery isn't actually expected until 2026. And in terms of restoring employment and tourism, it's been at a much slower pace than what all our sectors have been. So I think this was a very timely intervention. And equally, obviously, as I suppose, an anti-inflationary pressure. But it is very encouraging to see that inflation is starting to show signs of dipping. All right, and hopefully we'll see the uh, hotel prices dipping too. Uh, Martin, does this stick in your craw, given the fact that the hotel group have secured a 9% VAT rate for almost three years now, a VAT rate that other industries would absolutely cry out for? So the pricing in Dublin that's been reported there and it was reported in today's media does stick in my craw. It's outrageous um, in terms of those individual uh, few hotel spaces uh, that are left. Um, and I think it's, it is absolute short-termism from those hotels who decide to charge that price. Obviously, because of supply and demand, they can uh, look to extract that price out of people. But I think it's uh, morally wrong and I, I think it's really 
poor decision making on their part in terms okay. of the damage they're doing. But the but, wider point of wider you know, point, nearly 23,000 hotel rooms being gone in Dublin doesn't say to me that this is an industry that's on its knees. But Dublin is a different world uh, to the rest of the country in many ways. Uh, you're looking at the 9% VAT rate is much broader than just the hotel sector and it's definitely much broader than just hotels in Dublin. So, you know, we have 250,000 livelihoods linked um, with industry that are, are benefiting from the 9% VAT rate. They're cafes, restaurants, okay, predominantly... Okay, let's just stick to the issue of hotels here and the benefit that they're getting and whether or not but they you need can't, it. You're asking me about the 9% VAT rate and I'm making the point the 9% VAT rate is much broader than just the hotel sector. We looked at trying to separate them out. That's very, very difficult to do because... So it, in an ideal world, should the hoteliers not have got it? So, like, in terms of the hotels in Dublin, if you could have uh, extracted them out, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, they have, they, they have a much weaker case in terms of this 9% VAT rate than, let's say, cafes and restaurants all around the okay. length of breadth of the country. But there are 250,000 people employed here. And definitely this would have been an inflationary measure. We are seeing inflation start, the rise in inflation starting to drop. We want to see that if drop further. If the hotels further. had passed all this on and, to... Um, and it would have been passed on, but it's restaurants, not cafes, to it's hairdressers, uh, museums, and it's much broader okay. than just the hotels. Mm. Uh, Lynn, do you think the VAT rate at 9% should have remained? No, well, I think what the, the Irish Hotel Federation told the Oireachtas Committee was that the rebound was faster than expected, it was stronger recovery, it exceeded all of their forecasting. But the issue is that it's all bound up in the wider hospitality sector, and we have called for that. And I know my colleague Imelda Munster repeatedly asked to decouple those out because the hotel, there is gouging and it's not all hotels, there are a lot of hotels smaller, family run, independent okay. hotels that are not doing that. So the issue but the 9% the, the 9%, we would like to see the 9% extended for the hospitality sector, your restaurants, your cafes your hairdressers and, and, that, and that can be done and other European countries do that. The government are saying here, look, that wasn't revenue said, look, that's simply not possible, you don't buy that? No, I don't buy it at all. If other okay. countries can do it, why can't we? Uh, isn't there the argument, in fairness, Daniel that if 22,000 hotel rooms are gone in this city. That there was huge demand out there and the prices must have been more reasonable, otherwise they wouldn't have been booked. You know, that these are, as Elena says, complete outliers. Well, I, I don't necessarily buy that in its entirety because on a particular weekend, like a, a rugby weekend or on a Paddy's weekend, you're going to have that influx of people anyway and they're going to have to just... You know, you're going to... I want to go to Dublin that weekend. You're just going to stomach a higher price because you want to be there on that weekend. To, to Elena's point, though, I don't buy the argument in relation to the quality of offering vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, that we can justify being on par with other European capital cities. I was in Rome, you know, at the weekend for the rugby. You know, it's a far superior uh, experience because it was more value for money. We weren't being gouged in terms of the pubs we went in and the restaurants we ate in. It was reasonable in terms of where, what we ate. You come to Dublin Airport, Dublin Airport is a kip. You can't get into uh, the city centre with you know, well, there's a short attack. I don't know if I'd call it a Cape Nine fair. Have you gone to Dublin Airport? Really? I have. Well, actually, very recently, okay. and I'd have to say it a very positive experience. Dublin city, Dublin city centre is filthy, and it's really expensive to eat and drink in the city centre. So the quality of the overall offering is nowhere near on par where other European cities are. So, so my point being, my, po my point being is, it's very hard to justify Ireland as an equal or equal offering compared to other European cities and enjoy the benefit of this 9% reduction. Would um, be I just my want to go back to Elena because there is going to be a, a, a shortfall, is there not, this summer, given the fact that 30% of beds across the country are currently being used to house migrants. And is that going to push prices up even further right across the summer months when demand is at its peak? Is that what consumers need to prepare for, Elena? Well, I think we're at an exceptional level of peak demand this weekend, and it's very much a pressure point. Um, and that, you know, air air flights have been restored to you know better capacity levels than 2019. Okay. That's very encouraging. But just looking and ahead that, to so the summer months, it is. Elena. It, 
yeah, it, it absolutely is is a possibility that you are going to see, you know, higher pricing than what you would like or what might not represent value to you. And it's really, really important that people don't vote with their feet. If, if something isn't a value to them, they should absolutely not book it. And you have to make sure that, you know, what you're booking is comparable to what you want. So I've seen, you know, I've seen quite big prices quoted there for, for suites, multiple night, multiple night stays, you know, for capacity more than what you need. So it's really, really important that what you book is of value to you. Okay, uh, and Martin, book early vote. and book direct. Is that fair enough? Consumers vote with your feet, just don't book it. I think it's a fantastic uh, opportunity. Well, you're very welcome back. New figures from the HSC released today show the number of deaths from or with COVID-19 in nursing homes, in hospitals linked to outbreaks and in disability residential centres since the start of the pandemic. While some 27% of deaths occurred in nursing homes, 1,126 deaths were linked to hospital outbreaks. This comes alongside reports that the government intends to establish an inquiry into the state's handling of the pandemic. My panel is still here with me, Daniel McConnell, Martin Hayden TD and Lynn Boylan. And on Skype this evening, we're joined by Professor Roland Collins, a geriatric consultant at Tala Hospital. Um, you're very welcome to the programme. I'll come to you in, uh, in a moment. But uh, Danny, there has been calls for an inquiry into how the government and NEFIT handled COVID for well over a year now, 18 mm. months. It does appear to be going ahead. Do we have any idea the format that this is going to take? It hasn't quite been fleshed out, but what, I suppose what we've heard from government a lot is that it shouldn't be a witch hunt. Mm. It shouldn't be you're kind of, you know, like bringing people before a committee and, and berating them. Well, we um, heard, I think the, the Tarnished today even called it um, a look back, a evaluation. Look, yeah, and that would, I think, have a very limited appeal to me because there were many, many, many mistakes made during COVID-19 with very real consequences for an awful lot of people. I think the fundamental question we have to ask ourselves is how did NEFIT become the group that we outsourced so much responsibility to? Because there was a decision. They could have gone to the National Emergency Coordinating Committee, you know, this committee that we, you know, we hear about when there's floods and there's, you know, high winds and all that kind of stuff. But how do we end up in this much, much narrower public health uh, forum that was NEFIT that became so uh, crucial in terms of the, the, the messaging around government and the, 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 the influence that it had on government. And we've gone through you know, a lot of the decisions, you know, not, not to shut off access to nursing homes in the in the first instance, their decision to uh, oppose mask wearing for so long, antigen their opposition testing. to antigen testing, you know, closing the schools for so long in early 2021, stupidity like the nine-year-old meal, two-metre distancing, and on and on and on. And, and what we've had to go back and say, these were not just sort of, you know, zero-cost ideas. They had a huge cost in terms of the well-being of children, in terms of the well-being of people. And we got down to a position of lockdown being the only fallback position when things started getting a bit out of, out of control. And I think there are many legitimate questions that have to be asked. Of, of and do you feel confident they're going to be asked and answered no, in this I don't, inquiry? I don't think this will be a very sort of pedestrian, passive sort of inquiry. And what makes you think that? Because if, if the government is basically saying that, you know, it shouldn't be... They're setting the ground rules already before it's even begun, i.e. that it shouldn't be a robust inquiry as to why the certain decisions were taken. And we know from within the Cabinet, because the two books that have been published, Jack Organ Jones and Hugh O'Connell's book, and then Richard Chambers' book, all got into the nitty-gritty of the kind of tensions between government and NEFIT. And we know that ministers 
sitting at the cabinet table today have reservations and regrets about closing the schools for as long as they did. Yeah, even though I suppose in fairness the Taunashid has come out and said, look, mistakes, yes, were made, they need to be learned, but in relation to the number of COVID deaths in Ireland, we did better than an awful lot of countries. There is that point always made, isn't there? Is, there? There is that, there is okay. that, and I know you're constantly bringing in your other guests, but like, you know, it became an issue of duration of life for, versus quality of life, and we paid a very heavy cost. Yeah, is this going to be a robust inquiry, you know, because I do think that language around a look-back evaluation, we can't even call it an inquiry, it all feels a little bit woolly, Martin. Yeah, like, I, I don't accept that anyone has said it's not going to be robust, so um, I, I take on board the sentiment of, uh, of what Danny's saying there, um, but, like, from my perspective here, the way I see this is, we got to, we got some things right, uh, there was other things it, in, with the benefit of hindsight that you would do differently. Like what? Uh, I don't know, well, like the, the points you make, like I would like to reevaluate the impact. And it, part of this is the impact afterwards. So, yes, we can talk about how few deaths there was compared with other European countries and how, if you were to do a league table there, we, we measure very well on that. We have to measure and analyse the impact that the restrictions had. Um, and that is a fair question to have and a fair analysis to do so that we learn from this for future cases. But the fact is, we also need to be very mindful that these decisions were made in real time, uh, where, you know... Yeah, the catch and when we were dealing with a massive unknown, and there was a huge amount of fear, wasn't there? Absolutely, and, there the, and, and I suppose the risk here is that you do the analysis with the benefit of hindsight and you forget that context somewhat, uh, which wouldn't be fair either. So it's about getting that balance right, but we absolutely need to do this review because we don't know that there won't be another pandemic down the line or another type okay. of public health emergency, mm -hmm. and we want to learn from this and do things uh, better with the learnings from it in the future. Lynn, how should this inquiry be held? No, I do, do think, think it should be in, in, in public, in all individuals brought, you know, before almost like an Araxis committee and questioned about their decision-making? Would you like to see it take that Well, format? I think what, what the inquiry has to do is has to have the confidence of particularly the families who are affected and, and that's particularly the nursing homes um, where we've seen where so many of the deaths were. So those families mm -hmm. who've been campaigning for this inquiry need to have the confidence in it. But I think you can get both. You can have a robust and open and transparent process where we get answers and people can put their hands up and say, look, we did make a mistake there because... But it's not a witch hunt. But it shouldn't be a witch hunt because people should feel comfortable to be honest and upfront about mistakes that were made because look the reality is we are more than likely going to see more pandemics. That's the nature because of climate change, because of okay. biodiversity crisis, that is going to be more likely to happen again. OK, I want to go to uh, Professor uh, Collins there because I know at times during all of COVID you would have been critical about the collateral damage, I think was a, a phrase used by a member of NEFID in a paper recently um, due to some of the decisions that were made. Do you welcome this inquiry? I think most people in Ireland, when they hear the term inquiry, would prefer to run a mile um, because our, I suppose, our historical um, experience of inquiries have been rather kind of that they're adversarial events and that usually results in them becoming overly legalistic uh, from one side and that, of course, uh, prevents any meaningful outcome coming from some of our inquiries. So I think the term inquiry in itself, I know people are suggesting that they might use the term review or look back, but the term inquiry itself has a bad, uh, if you like, rep in Ireland, so I'm not too sure I like the term. 
I suppose speaking as a clinician, and we, you know, if we, this was a critical incident or a, if we were looking at something that had a serious adverse outcome, you know, we would be approaching this slightly different. There'd be a kind of a root cause analysis. There would be a recognition that most decisions are when things are going wrong, there's multifactorial facets involved in it. You'll be seeking to see you know, what wasn't followed in existence or what were we deficit on and seeking to learn from that. And I think the point is well made with regard to future pandemics. There has been as many pandemics or threatened pandemics in the first 20 years of this century as there were was in the whole of the last century, much of it due to the destruction of our environment and also the trade in wild animals that must be recognised. Okay. And that is something that needs to be tackled separately. But to go back and specifically speak about nursing homes, mm -hmm. just to make this point to the panel, we've done our inquiry. There was an expert panel set up in 2021. It did the root cause analysis. It explored in great detail what was wrong with our nursing home system and the response to the pandemic and the reason people had such a very, I would say, bad and traumatic experience with uh, loved ones in nursing homes. And what I would prefer the government to concentrate on from the nursing home perspective, certainly, is to review the implementation of that expert panel review. Um, do you welcome the fact that there was a member of NEFIT um, in a paper at the weekend saying, yes, mistakes were made, you know, freedoms were excessively limited um, and lessons have to be learned? Oh, well, listen, in yes, but in, a, in, in the approach to anything new like this, I don't think any project is undertaken where you would look back and say, God, we made some mistakes, we could have done some things differently. Yeah, but yes, I would have been very vocal at the time. I thought there was too much of an infringement on the rights okay. of older people. All right. Uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I assure you we will get back uh, to this uh, topic because there's certainly more in it. My thanks to all of my guests this evening and to you at home. Our programme is available as a podcast. We'll be back here tomorrow night at 10 o'clock from the team. Good night. Take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.